Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. In 2000, director Christopher Nolan and star Guy Pearce gave the world a frenetic flick that toyed with the ideas of memory, time, and reality. In 2023, we returned to Kentucky to try a four-grain bourbon. The film is Memento. The whiskey is Rabbit Hole Cave Hill. And we'll review them both. This is the, the Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week, Brad, the mind effing begins on film and whiskey. Bob, I I got a tattoo in memoriam of this episode. <laughs> it's just it just says Brad explains. Fact number one, Brad always explains. <laughs> this week we are starting a mini series of films by everyone's favorite time traveling director, Christopher Nolan. We've done a few Nolan films on the show before, Brad. I know we've done Interstellar, let's see, Inception, and The Dark Knight, right? So this is yeah. four, five, and six from Chris Nolan. Which will put him up there as one of our higher, you know, amount of films r- reviewed. Yeah. I mean, it really was kind of fortuitous, Brad, because we're doing this mini series of directors. And if you look at, say, the IMDb Top 250, you see a lot of Nolan movies in there. And it's because, Mm A, Nolan makes really good movies, and B, he has amassed a following as a director that is kind of unparalleled, I would say, since the early Tarantino days in terms of having Mm -hmm. fanboys. Yeah. So I kind of figured it would be necessary for us to talk about these three movies at some point. And what better time to do them than leading up to the release of his movie Oppenheimer, which I believe comes out on the 21st of July. So, mm. yeah, it's 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 great time for engagement and downloads, Brad. That's daggone right it is. <laughs> I was going to say, if there's any time where we wanted to ingratiate ourselves to the Nolan fanboys, uh, this is it. This so, is the Bob, time. get ready for the butt kissing of all butt kissing. <laughs> oh, and speaking of which, uh, not the butt kissing part, but the fortuitous timing part. <laughs> We don't always line up our whiskeys in thematic ways, but I figured we had a whiskey sitting on the shelf called Rabbit Hole, and I was like, oh, man, if we're going to talk about going down the rabbit hole with any director, Chris Nolan. Yeah, I, am I right? I like, mean, am I right? Because I matched him up, so. 
It would have been better with the Matrix. I um, think it would have been even better with uh, the Prestige, just because of pulling rabbits out of hats and uh, stuff like that. But, and you're going down the rabbit hole. That mm, would have been better. That's all right. We did pretty good. So, well, by you take your own blame for the failure of this show, Bob. I mean, this could have been the week we did like Basil Hayden's or something, Brad. So just count your lucky stars, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, that whiskey sucks. All right. Well, let's steer away from Basil Hayden. Let's steer back into Chris Nolan. So it's been a while since we've done a Nolan film on the podcast. Brad, you know, just I'm sure that you've watched a Nolan film probably in the interim just because they're so popular. When you think about Christopher Nolan, what kind of directorial or writing or acting hallmarks come up in your mind? Like, who is he as a director? First off. I love that you assume that I just watch movies like we've been friends for long enough, Bob, that, you know, I don't watch movies other than for the podcast. I feel like it makes me feel like such a huge jerk, though, to assume the other way to be like, well, Brad, I assume you don't watch any movies. So let's just say that you haven't watched a Chris Nolan movie in two years. I, I will clear the record for everyone listening here, Bob. I have not watched a Christopher <laughs> Nolan movie in the last two years. Well, then let me rephrase. In the two years it's been, what kind of things about Nolan stick out to you when you think about him as a director, even through two years of hazy, foggy memory? I think that he always has really dynamic relationships with the characters in his films. Uh, I, I'll, I'll spoil a tiny bit of memento here. The moments where he has memories of his wife mm -hmm. feel like the most Nolan-y version of himself in this, you know, his earliest film. Mm -hmm. uh, is this his first film? It's not technically his first film. So he made a movie called Following a few years before this, which was, I think it's only about 65 or 70 minutes long. Like, it's just long enough to count as a feature film. It played mm -hmm. at a few film festivals and kind of got him the recognition he needed to make Memento. But Memento is the movie that introduced him to the world. Yeah. So, yeah, it's his second movie. But for all intents and purposes, for, it, it's kind of his first, first movie. Yeah, so there, there's pieces of Memento that feel like, oh, you can see where he will go as a blockbuster director. But for now, what, what I think of when I think about Nolan is convoluted plots that have just wild endings. Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean, the only one I can think of that's not necessarily that wild is like Batman Begins. Mm -hmm. And even that one has a plot twist. Yeah. Uh, he is just a fascinating director who uses the camera really well in memory sequences. Mm. Uh, I think that's what I, I think about. And, and I'll go back to what we said about uh, Interstellar. He just swings for the fences constantly. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean he always gets there. But I think the reason he has a fanboy following is because he's always trying to like hit a grand slam. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, totally agree. I think that as a filmmaker, what he's most known for is playing with time. He's obsessed with the concept of time, whether it's moving forward in time or backward in time or across time in Interstellar. It's always a theme throughout his movies. And time and memory, I think, are the two things that you could really call his hallmarks as a director. Brad, you know, we, we just came off of a Chaplin series, and I told you that I got 12 books out of the library about Chaplin. Uh, I went to the library, and I ordered some books about Chris Nolan, and there's only three of them on my shelf now. And I think it says a lot about, I don't know, the state of film criticism that one of the most significant filmmakers of the last 20 years 
has only had a few films written about him or a few books written about him. And I can't decide if it's because it, it just doesn't seem like it's been long enough to offer a career evaluation or if it's just that his themes are so on the surface or, you know, so proudly displayed that there's really not much of a need to do a book length dive into them because I think everyone recognizes this is what this guy deals with. Like, even to your point, something like the Batman series that he did, the Dark Knight series, those are all about time. There's always a ticking clock at the end of those movies, whether it's the bomb at the end of the third one or racing against time in the Joker in the second one. And even in the first one, when you're establishing the story of Bruce Wayne, like the memory of his parents getting murdered is what drives the character of Batman. And mm -hmm. so it, he's always been the perfect filmmaker for that character because it's right in line with what he likes to talk about. I haven't seen Batman Begins in a really long time. I think that one ends with a bomb racing for Wayne Tower at the at the center of the city, right? Yeah, like there, it's, it's him and Liam monorail? Neeson on the monorail. Yeah. Yeah, so even that one, it's it's a bomb race, kind of <laughs> like the third one. <laughs> yeah, man, I'm excited to dive into Nolan. I, and I don't mean to make it sound like he's a simplistic filmmaker. Like you said, he's always playing with the chronology of his movies. And sometimes it seems like it's necessary for the movies to be told. And sometimes it feels like it's just Chris Nolan wanting to take a pretty straightforward story and just make it convoluted for the sake of making it convoluted. <laughs> These three films we're going to look at, I have wildly different opinions across the three of them. And to get us back to Memento, I will say this. I have not seen Memento in probably 15 years. I watched it one time. I wasn't a huge fan. I always felt like it was a little forced. It was a little contrived. Uh, a little too cute for its own good. You and I, Brad, sat down and watched this movie together. A first for the Film and Whiskey podcast. An absolute first. I, I mean, we have never once sat down together and watched a movie for the purpose of recording an episode for you all. And you're that, welcome. Like, that's crazy, folks. man. Yeah, you're welcome. I mean, this is this is episode what, like two oh nine or something for us, and mm -hmm. it's never ever happened before. And not to spoil too much of my thoughts on the movie, but I have changed my tune on Memento. Ooh, I, I mean, I'm excited to talk about it then. <laughs> All right, man. I think that I've been delaying something, the inevitable here for a couple minutes. And that's because mm. I do not envy your task today in our first <laughs> segment, which we call Brad Explains. Brad's going to give us the movie plot with only 60 seconds ticking on the clock. So let's go ahead and hear your take. With this little segment that we call Brad Explains. Would you th say that doing a Brad Explains for Gone with the Wind or Memento would be harder? I mean, Gone with the Wind is just like this happens and then this happens and then this happens. And, then, you know, like it's just a yeah, long but gone, movie. But Gone with the Wind is like this happens and this happens and then 397 other things happen. <laughs> that was more just like a list that you were reading. This is going to be a real <laughs> challenge. So Brad Explains is the part of the podcast where Brad breaks down the plot of the movie that he has just seen, often for the first time. Brad, was this your first time watching Memento? It sure was, Bob. Well, then I really don't envy you. Uh, you have 60 seconds on the clock to break down the plot of this movie. Folks, we are going to get into spoilers on this review. If you've not seen the 22-year-old movie Memento, I need you to just stop here, go listen to it, and then come back because... This movie and the discussion of it is going to hinge on its spoilers. So, Brad, uh, just a no holds bar. Don't hold anything back. You've got one minute on the clock to break down this movie and go. 
Guy Pierce is an insurance agent whose big break came when he proved that a man named Sammy Jankis did not actually have short-term memory loss and he was faking it, which led to the death of that man's wife. Uh, and then he himself, uh, Guy Pierce's character, receives short-term memory loss after his wife is brutally attacked and murdered in their home. The rest of the film is about him trying to put together the pieces of his wife's murder and figure out who the killer is. By the end of the film, he has interacted with Trinity from The Matrix, and she is helping him to try and figure out the problem. Uh, Joe Pantoliani, Leoni, Leoni? Uh, Joe yeah. plays a guy named Teddy, who is a police officer who's trying to help him find the killer. But at the end of the film, it turns out that they already found and killed the killer, but the short-term memory loss never allowed him to remember that. And so Teddy has been using him to kill a bunch of different people who are bad guys. And Guy Pierce turns the formula around and uses his short-term memory loss to seek out and kill Teddy. Okay, I let you go for a minute and 20 seconds because that's it's hard, man. You know? Thanks, man. It yeah, is what it is. I, I'm really interested, Brad, in the fact that you explained this movie in the chronological order that the events happen in the movie. That's the only way to do it, man. <laughs> and I'm wondering how important it is that we say up front that the central conceit of this movie is that it is not told in chronological order. It is told in a disorienting fashion and it really does take you until just about the last minute of the movie to piece everything together, not only because information is withheld from you, but just because you are watching two different timelines being intercut. Yeah, and that's that's kind of the whole the whole gimmick, Bob. Mm. It's it's I hate to say it, but this movie is a big gimmick. It is a big and gimmick. It most it mostly works. The thing that makes it not work is what Nolan is constantly uh undermined for which is way too much dialogue and i i just don't know if he's a great director of actors because there's a lot of bad acting in this movie oh yeah i disagree with that i think that he's a really good director of actors i will say that you and i were sitting next to each other on the couch watching this movie and at multiple points you know at you know in the middle of the movie we were stopping it and just laughing at some of the dialogue in this movie but I think it's also really important to note that if you're going to kind of categorize this movie into a genre, this is a noir. This is a 100% a film noir. It has all of the elements of a noir. It's uh, an unreliable narrator who may or may not be doing sketchy things. It's got corrupt cops. It's got a femme fatale. It's got uh, a mystery that needs to be unraveled. People keep dying. It has a really bleak outlook on the world. Like it is 100% a film noir. And I do wonder if. Because of having that in mind, if Nolan makes these characters speak in sort of almost 1940s hard-boiled detective language, I'm not saying it works, but I'm wondering now, Brad, if the, the reason the dialogue feels so forced sometimes is because he's trying to make the dialogue sound more like a noir. Yeah, and, and there's places where it works. I mean, honestly, I think that some of the black and white scenes work because they're black and white and you're like, oh, yeah, this is this is a noir that this totally makes sense. I think that the the big issue I have is that not only is the dialogue rough, 
but it the actors just often feel stilted throughout the movie. Mm. I think that Guy Pierce does a phenomenal job when he's not talking. Like when he is silent, I, I think that he has a talent for looking blank on the surface while like completely confused underneath and trying to figure out what's going on. And I think that he has a real talent for that, but then he opens his mouth and it's not great, <laughs> Bob. <laughs> I can feel you trying to jump into performances here. And I want to I just want to real quick, I want to reestablish this whole thing about the timeline of the movie, because I feel like we're going to be talking about the different timelines of this movie and we need to at least offer a little bit of an explanation. So the movie starts with the chronological ending of the events and you kind of get a hint very early on that everything that you see in color is moving in reverse chronological order. At the same time, these color scenes are being intercut with black and white scenes, and those are moving forward in time the way time normally works. And what you come to find out is basically like you have two timelines being intercut, one going from the end towards a middle point backwards in time, and one going from the beginning towards that same middle point. And they both arrive at the same middle point at the end of the movie, and you get this really cool transition from black and white fading into color, and you can tell, all right, this is where these two timelines intersect. But you're entirely right, Brad, in that the the stylizing of those different timelines is almost completely different. I mean, not just the fact that it's black and white, but the kind of dialogue that, or I guess monologue, that Guy Pierce is giving in those black and white scenes where he's just talking over the phone to an unseen person, that feels very much like your standard, you know, double indemnity or Sunset Boulevard kind of narration where he's he's just talking about, OK, this is what happened with Sammy Jenkins. And you could see that if this was a movie from the 50s, they would have this really nice, like, dissolve into the first time I met Sammy Jenkins. And you have this voiceover, mm -hmm. except it's not played as voiceover. It's played as like this paranoid conversation that he's having inside a motel room. I don't know, man. I, I, I can't say that the dialogue or the way that it's written works for me as believable dialogue. But I think for me, it's more that this is the early 2000s where it was really cool to mumble everything. Like it <laughs> reminded me so much of like Jim Carrey in Eternal Sunshine, how you can never he's like he's so morose that you can't really mm -hmm. understand what he's saying at any point. That's Guy Pierce in this movie. And I know it's intentional, but we watched this movie with subtitles on because it was the dialogue comes at you really fast, but it's never enunciated well enough to understand. And, and that's that's like a, a problem, Bob. <laughs> like if I'm sitting here on this podcast and I'm just talking like this and I think that it's really silly. That just, you know, think, like, like you would drive down to Delaware and slap me across the face. Right. <laughs> With a microphone. With a microphone. Sit closer and tell to, me to Enunciate. Enunciate. Sit closer. And I, I just don't understand how a Hollywood film director can struggle to have his actors be understood. And I know that he has a whole thing about how he wants his sound design done. You don't need to understand every word. And like, for the most part, I I'm fine with that. Like, I actually have come to a point where I don't like subtitles because I want to watch the movie as the director wants me to watch it. But I'll just tell you this. If I can't understand even like 30% of what an actor says throughout the movie, you know, if it especially if it's the main actor, I'm not going to enjoy the movie. I want to know what's going on. 
And and Memento was a struggle with that, especially in a movie like this, where so much of the information is withheld from you until the very end that you Mm -hmm. need to be able to rely on what you're seeing and hearing just to make heads or tails of what's going on. Even if it's supposed to be disorienting, even if you're not supposed to understand exactly who put those cuts on his face or what's her motivation right now, you at least need to be able to understand what they're saying and what they're pretending is their alibi. And when you can't understand that, it really does cause some huge problems for this movie. And I think that it's kind of a minor miracle, Brad, because like I said, at multiple points in this movie, I was like, this is not working at all, Brad. And you were like, no, I don't like this at all. And I was about to come in here with the hottest hot takes ever and say, oh man, it's even worse than I remembered. And to its credit, the last 20 minutes of this movie are pitch perfect to a point where I can't believe how much it improved my final score. Yeah, no, I I mean, the the last 20 minutes of this film, everything comes together. The editing is nice and tight. Mm -hmm. The acting takes a jump up as the action becomes more tense. Like everything about the last 15 to 25 minutes was great, like impressive. But the rest of it was a very, very average film that I wish had been directed by, like, I don't know, Alfonso Cuaron. Hmm. Like, I I feel like there's just other people who would have done a much better job with, like, 80% of this movie. I think that this movie relies on its editing. And we usually don't talk about editing uh, on this podcast in depth. But the way it's edited together, it reminds me a lot of, like, some of the... Like like Oliver Stone movies from the early 90s, like JFK, which, Brad, I can't wait till we watch that on this show someday. It is probably the best edited movie I've ever seen. And there's this whole sequence towards the end of the movie where Kevin Costner's character is giving his argument in court for why Lee Harvey Oswald was not actually the killer. And it's just this dizzying montage of... You know, the Zapruder film with reenactment, with courtroom footage and the sound and the John Williams score is like it to me. It's like the pinnacle of film editing. And I think this movie relies on that a lot. You see this all through the 90s with uh, twist ending kind of movies like The Usual Suspects. Um, and and I think this movie really, really does rely on that editing. I don't know if a Quaron necessarily would have made this movie that much better because it's about the way that the movie is cut. And if you don't have what I think is some really great editing, I don't think the movie works at all, no matter who's behind the camera. I have a question for you about the JFK assassination. Mm, Yes, this is exactly what I wanted to talk about on our Memento episode. Hey, man, you brought it up. So uh, (laughs) it's all your fault. So a conspiracy theory, by definition, is something that like a a small part of the population believes, right? Like that's kind of like a basic thing is like, yeah, this little group of people believe in Sasquatch. Sure. Would you say it's more of a conspiracy theory to believe that, like, Oswald was the shooter, that, like, he was the only one, like, to believe the story that was told to us or to, like, believe the the gunman on the hill, the two shooters, the whole thing? Like, do you think it's more of a conspiracy theory now in 2023 to be like, yeah, no, I just think it happened the way the government said it did? I, think I feel a, like I, everybody I, believes in the conspiracy theory. I now. think it's a good question. I think that you can't necessarily equate the terms conspiracy theory and like fringe belief, right? Like conspiracy yeah. theory is just like the theory that someone was conspiring in a way that the record doesn't reflect. And that, that could be something that is believed by a small or a large part of the population. I think you're right, though, in that it is a more 
fringe belief, a more radical notion nowadays <laughs> to believe that it happened the way they said. I think more of the population thinks JFK uh, had some shady business going on and the mm. government and or someone else took care of him. Yeah, some some bad actors, mm. if you will. Speaking of bad actors, uh, uh, let's get back into talking about Memento. <laughs> I'm really <laughs> all excited ties together, baby. I'm really excited to talk about Carrie Ann Moss in this movie because she plays one of the most villainous and devious femme fatales I've ever seen in a noir. And yet, the more I've thought about this movie, Brad, the more I'm not sure how devious she actually is. We need to talk about it, but before we get into the character, let's talk about the performance. I think she's really good in this movie. Like, her character is not fleshed out on purpose. We only know who she is through Leonard. And she plays exactly the role she needs to play in his story, and then she's out of the movie. So you don't get these big emotional scenes from her where she's talking about her motivations, but you don't need that in a movie like this. And I think for what she's asked to do, she's really, really good. Yeah. Overall, her performance is like 7 out of 10, and then she has that scene where she's screaming at him and just like basically calling him an idiot and like, you're not even going to remember this. Like, I'm going to go back out and come back in. You're going to forget the whole thing and I'm going to tell you whatever I want. And then she does it. And it like her performance in that scene where she's faking how she got attacked is mind blowingly good. Mm -hmm. Like 10 out of 10 acting. And I was just like, oh, man, dude, she is like terrifying here. All right, so here's the funny thing about this character. And Brad, I was reading and reading and reading before we press record. I understand this movie pretty easily. Like, once you understand the gimmick of the movie, you go, okay, so I can lay these things out in my mind chronologically. The only thing that I couldn't wrap my mind around was her character. And if she is truly evil, or like, what is the the end point of her character? Does she still Is she still using Leonard? Does she still hate Leonard? And when you think about the character chronologically... She is a bartender who is also kind of helping set up drug deals for her boyfriend, Jimmy. Jimmy is supposed to go meet this guy named Teddy, who we we later learn who Teddy is. And she sets up this deal and Jimmy never comes back. And then a guy who we know is Leonard shows up in Jimmy's car wearing Jimmy's clothes. And she figures out pretty easily that it's this guy that Jimmy's been calling the memory guy from seeing him around town. And mm -hmm. so she starts using him to try to get information on what the hell happened to her drug dealer boyfriend. She has him go kind of kidnap and get rid of this guy named Dodd at some point. And once he does that, she seems to have like a change of heart because the first times we see her in the movie is the end of the story chronologically. And she's helping him find this license plate that he wrote down. And I kept thinking like, oh, she was using Leonard to bump off Teddy, the cop. But I think at one point in the movie, Teddy even tells Leonard, like, no, she doesn't know who I am. So mm -hmm. I don't really think she actually is being devious beyond getting the information that she wanted. And, and she was like, hell, yeah, I'll use this guy. He's wearing my boyfriend's clothes. He clearly knows something. And the more I think about it, the more I'm like, the reveal is set up as if she's a femme fatale. But when you lay it out chronologically, it's actually kind of reasonable what she does. Yeah, and, and I'm curious if she somehow knows that Teddy is a cop. Like, even if he says, oh, she doesn't know who I am. Like, I wonder if she has figured out somehow that he's a cop and is responsible for her boyfriend's murder. And so it's like, well, you know, I can use this 
this uh, Pierce to get or Leonard to get back at him. But even if that's not the case, like I like I like her character. I, I think that she's kind of smart and witty. Yeah. And her ability to uh, control the situation is really impressive. And that takes us to Joe Pantoliano as Teddy, who I think. I mean, he has this the kind of scene stealing performance of the movie. Like he's the wisecracking side character. Mm-hmm. He is perfect for what this movie needs him to be. It's the Edward Edward G. Robinson character of this movie. He's really, really good. And I love that Nolan catches both of these people, Carrie Ann Moss and Joe Pantoliano, coming off The Matrix. Like, this is the first movie they make after The Matrix, I think, both of them. And they're both so good in this movie. And I think that it's kind of funny because in The Matrix, you get the big reveal that Joe Pantoliano is the bad guy. In this movie, you get the big reveal that he's actually been helping our protagonist the whole movie and that the Trinity character is actually kind of a dick to him. You know what I mean? Like, it's a great little Mm -hmm. reversal of their roles from The Matrix. I really loved his performance. Yeah, Joe was hands down the best performer in the movie. Uh, I really liked Mark Boone Jr. I I thought he was good as the, uh, the receptionist. At the motel. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I, I think that Joe Pantoliano definitely steals the show. And I like at the end of the day, though, I have to ask, is like was what he was doing worth it? Like he like he tells him like, yeah, you killed the guy like four guys ago and I've just been using you to keep killing more guys. Like, mm-hmm. do you think he has it down to a science of like. All right, day one, show him this picture of this guy, and day two, do this. And, <laughs> like, I, like, does he have it figured out down pat, like, how to get him to kill people? I just feel like there's easier way to kill people than have a dude with short-term memory loss, like, go through the motions every day and figure it out. Well, especially since you have to be with him for so much. Like, it's one thing to just hire a hitman when you don't yeah. have any other contact beyond, like, <laughs> Here's the guy. Here's the money. Go kill him. You know, like they're going to have video surveillance footage of him riding around in a car with Leonard like for weeks and weeks on end. Yeah, it it just feels very uh, (laughs) uh, contrived. I don't know. Out of out of all the plots that Christopher Nolan has sold us, I feel like this one is kind of the silliest Mm-hmm. Where this this detective's like, yeah, you know what I could do with this short term memory loss guy, you know, turn him into a psych hospital, or. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Brad, I think we're in a good place to hit pause. Let's try this rabbit hole. What do you say? Let's get to it. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, so today we are checking out Rabbit Hole Cave Hill. This is the second Rabbit Hole product we've tried on the show. And the thing about Rabbit Hole, Brad, is I know that at one point they weren't putting these fancy little names on their bottles. It was just like Rabbit Hole Black Label or Rabbit Hole Red Label. And so when we were first sent these samples by our friend Austin at the Bourboneering Podcast, it was just like Rabbit Hole Bourbon and then Rabbit Hole Red or something. It's <laughs> like, what is mm-hmm. this? Because then I go look it up <laughs> online and now they've added these names like Cave Hill and High Gold and all these things. So what we're trying today, uh, you may know it as just Rabbit Hill Rabbit Hole Black Label. This is a four grain bourbon, 70% corn, 10% malted wheat, 10% honey malted barley, 10% malted barley. So, I mean, two of the grains are barley, but they're malted in different ways. So they count them as separate things. I'm pretty pumped to try this, Brad. It's a high barley mash bill, much more barley than there is wheat in this and no rye. Yeah, it Sounds absolutely delicious. I will say, without it being an age statement, as a Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey, doesn't that doesn't that mean it has to be at least four years? At least four years old to not carry an okay. age statement. So that means that the youngest whiskey in this blend is at least four years of age. Uh, they have a big thing on their website that they say this is an extreme small batch. Mm, never, extreme. never more than fifteen barrels in each batch, which I really Ooh. like. That you know, that does seem small enough that it seems like a legitimate small batch. And not whatever yeah. the hell, you know, wild turkey is trying to sell us. Or yeah, whatever. 250, 300 barrel blend. <laughs> All right. So this is coming in at 95 proof or 47.5% ABV. Let's dive in, man. What are you picking up on the nose? The nose is really beautiful. It's got some nice caramel and vanilla. There's toasted marshmallow, some strawberry. And almost at the end, I found myself thinking about like cream of wheat, mm-hmm. but not bad. Like like a, a really nice sugary cream of wheat. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I liked it a lot, Bob. I gave it an 8 out of 10. I like this a lot, too. It's very bright on the nose. I get a lot of like almond extract on this, almost like an almond cake. Uh, but it goes along with all those notes you were talking about. Lots of vanilla on this. And then I get quite a bit of blueberry, which is something I don't usually get. And I'm not talking like blueberry syrup or something. It's just fresh picked. Like when you go to wash them before you eat them, like it's just, man, it's really, really nice. Mm-hmm. And then I get just a slight, the slightest hint of like brininess on this. There's just a little bit of a, a salty thing going on here too. I'm excited to see how that translates to the taste, but the the nose is off the charts, man. Really good. I'm going to give it an eight and a half. Yeah. The palate is, matches the nose perfectly. Uh, for me, it, it turned into a little bit more of a floral, uh, honey, agave type of direction, along with some caramel that you got on the nose. And then it almost got a little bit minty for me at the end, like a like a sweet mint. And I absolutely loved this, Bob. I give it an eight and a half out of ten. This is definitely not an unsweet whiskey, but the the sweetness that we normally get on weeded bourbons is not the dominant flavor here. It's really nice. And I, I think I still am getting some of that blueberry. It's like almost like a dark fruit underlying it. You might be able to pick it up as black cherry. You might pick it up as a, like a raisin. For me, it's coming across as blueberry right now. Uh, there's a lot of vanilla on it as well. And then it gets really heavily like char flavor for me. I really like it. And I think that might be the barley coming through a little bit. But the combo of that kind of really dark char 
with some really nice dark fruit is super unique. This is not a flavor profile we get on many bourbons, Brad. I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10. Yeah, and then as we get into the finish, I think that there like everything you want on a finish is here. It's a little bit oaky. The mint keeps coming through for me. And then the the cream of wheat almost kind of blends with some of the fruity notes and almost turns into like an orange creamsicle flavor for me on the finish. I really liked it. Uh, again, I'll, I'll give it an 8 out of 10. Yeah, I think the finish is just more of the same from the palate, which is really nice. Like it's 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 nice sometimes when you don't have to give a whole new set of notes on something and it's just super consistent. It's the same notes of like really dark blueberry, almost a blueberry compote, dark cherry for me, and then that that barrel char mixed with a little bit of that kind of light effervescence that we get from weeded bourbons, lots of vanilla, that caramel and brown sugar finally come out on the end. This is really nice. I will say this, Brad, I don't know if this is like an intro to bourbon bourbon. You know what I mean? This is like, A, it's more complex than most bourbons I would offer someone who's just starting out. But B, it seems outside the norm of weeded bourbon enough that I wouldn't like if you put this in a lineup with like Rebel and Weller and Maker's Mark, I think this is the one that would be like the outlier of the group flavor wise. It's really, really good. I just think that I'm glad we waited until now to try it because it defied my expectations so much. I'm going to give it an eight on the finish, and I'm also going to give it an eight and a half on the balance. See, I I think balance is actually where this stands out. I think that there's enough complexity here with really nice uh, balance of flavors that move through the nose to the taste to the finish really, really well. I give it a nine and a half on balance. Wow. Wow. And then when we get to value in the state of Ohio, you can get this uh, a 750 milliliter bottle for $60. And honestly, I think that that's a pretty good value like this across the board is like a B plus whiskey. And so I I think that $60 is kind of right on par for where it should go as far as just the juice that's in the bottle. I give it an 8 out of 10. Yeah, I I will say that, again, we we always come back to this thing of like Brad scores his value score based on like, does the taste of the product justify the price? And I always come at it a little bit more from like, man, it's a good thing this tastes good because I think this is kind of pricey for a four-year bourbon. You know what I'm saying? Like... Rabbit Hole always prices their stuff kind of in that premium pricing range. And the last Rabbit Hole we had, we liked, but we didn't love it. And I think at $60, that one was a pretty low value. This is the same kind of principle. It's a four-year bourbon. You could get Rebel for $20 or you could get this for $60. I think that it's slightly overpriced, but I am swayed to give it a better score because the juice is really, really good. I think I'll still give this a 7 out of 10 on value, but that is with the caveat that, like, I'm scoring it that high because the product is good, not because the production mandates that this needs to be $60. Does that make sense? Yeah, uh, 100%. Yeah, so for me, at the end of the day, I am coming out to a, a pretty high score here, Bob. I'm at a 42 out of 50. I am at a 40 out of 50, which takes us to a very easy to average 41 out of 50 or an 82 out of 100. This is our highest scoring whiskey in a little while, Brad. It's nice to have one that we can pretty heartily recommend here. 
Yeah, this is a very obvious whiskey that you should go try. Mm-hmm. I think it's worth getting a sample at the bar. I think it's worth getting a bottle. So also, it's a really beautiful bottle. So yeah. add, it, add it to your liquor shelf. This is an easy recommend from both Bob and I. Now, I am like the, if you're the resident rye fan on this podcast, I feel like I can pretty confidently say I'm the resident weeded bourbon guy. Like this is just, this is my favorite kind of bourbon. Would, oh, yeah. would you agree with me that this is probably the most unique tasting weeded bourbon we've ever had, just in terms of being outside the norm? Yeah, 100%. Mm-hmm. The, this one has some really interesting flavors. For me, it was that mintiness that like really turned me on to this whiskey, and I, I just enjoyed it a lot. Me too, man. All right, so we're above the 40 mark once again. Go buy it. Go try it. Brad, let's get back into talking about Memento. What do you say? Let's get to it. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. All right, everybody, that was Rabbit Hole Cave Hill Bourbon, Mm. a whiskey worth going down the rabbit hole for, Bob. I will say we have climbed back out of the rabbit hole, Brad, and I can't wait to Ah. dive back in again. (laughs) Ah, Nailed it. Mm. Uh, You know what rabbit hole I like going down every week, Bob? (laughs) I think I do, Brad. Is it two facts and a falsehood? It's Canada's favorite segment, two facts and a falsehood. Gonna try to stump you, Bob. Two are right, and one is wrong. Two facts and a falsehood. Two facts and a falsehood is the part of the podcast where Brad presents three items to me as fact about the making of this movie, one of which is a lie, and I have to figure out which one that is. Brad, I don't remember what I'm sitting at on the season. I think I'm like a game under 500. Like, I'm still hanging around in the division. Yeah, but for I'm sure. like I think, I'm like in third or fourth place in the wild card race. You know, if I if I had to guess, I'm pretty sure you are six and seven All right. right now. We'll say six so, and seven. That sounds good. Yeah, you're doing great, man. I'm proud of you. You're, you're giving you. it the old college try. <laughs> it's a little demeaning, but that's fine. I'll take it. Hey, that's about the best you'll get for me. <laughs> Fact number one. <laughs> Initially, Brad Pitt showed interest in playing the role of Leonard, but was not able to due to other commitments. Once he passed on the role, Christopher Nolan did not consider any other, quote, A-list actors because he wanted to have the ability to spread his budget more evenly among the cast. Fact number two, Christopher and Jonathan Nolan were turned down by 12 different studios before new market films picked them up. Memento was their first film, and its critical success helped them succeed as a film distribution company. Fact number three, Christopher Nolan's screenplay was based on his brother Jonathan Nolan's story, Memento Mori. However, the screenplay is still considered original rather than adapted because Jonathan's story was not published until after the film was completed. I think number two is the falsehood, but uh, I'm going to I'm going to vamp a little bit so that we get some quality content out of this. Brad. (laughs) I read earlier that uh, Brad Pitt had been considered for this role and he had a really busy schedule. And I found that very funny, and I was going to bring it up at some point on this episode, because you and I had said at multiple points, this would have been a great Brad Pitt role. 
And mm-hmm. the stylings of, of Guy Pierce looked very similar to Brad Pitt in Fight Club from the bleached spiked hair uh, mm-hmm. to the, the kind of wiry frame. I think it's really funny that the suit that Guy Pierce wears in this movie is really similar to the suit that Brad Pitt then wears the next year in Ocean's Eleven. So mm-hmm. I could very easily see Brad Pitt in this. I think one's true. I also think three is true because I know that this was based on on Jonathan's short story. I know this movie was nominated for a screenplay Oscar, but I don't remember if it was original or adapted. So you might be able to get me there. But that sounds very true. So I'm going to go ahead and say two is the falsehood. Bob, you are now seven and seven on the season. Congratulations. Look at you coming back up to 500. Thank you, Brad Pitt. (laughs) I'd like to thank Brad Pitt for not being in this movie so that I could learn the trivia about him. Dude, the other person I was thinking about was Edward Norton, mm-hmm. which, you know, obviously like the Fight Club duo. But uh, I, I feel like Edward Norton could have pulled this role off better than Guy Pierce. I've thought about this because he told me this the other night, and I don't think I agree anymore. I think Edward Norton would have brought too much kind of nervous energy to this movie, whereas the kind of like detached, cool, calm, collected version of Guy Pierce, you know... I was reading something Nolan said about him and why he loved Guy Pierce so much in this movie. And he talked about Leonard's optimism and how if this movie was laid out chronologically, it would suck because it's just not told that way. But also because you have to keep buying into the fact that this guy wakes up every day with this blank expression on his face and and motivated by optimism like a puppy dog. And I think you really do get that in a lot of these scenes. I kind of commented that to you as we were watching it, that there is a sort of earnestness to him as a character, even before you find out some of the shady stuff he did at the end of the movie, that the version who doesn't remember that, you know, he goes into the world very naive, not too differently than the tramp that we've been watching for the last four weeks, Brad. Look at you, Bob. I just I think that Guy Pierce pulls that part of the role off better than most people could, especially in the early 2000s. Yeah, yeah. I I mean, I I think that there is an element of that's of that that is true. I think my struggle is the idea of him as a optimistic puppy dog who has tattoo a tattoo on his body that says John G raped and killed my wife. Okay, well I will say I I uh, ad-libbed the puppy dog <laughs> part of it, but I oh, okay. am with Chris Nolan on his optimism comment. Yes, I am I agree that most dogs would not tattoo that on themselves. <laughs> it's a very grim optimism at the very least. <laughs> Like, I might not have been able to save my wife, but I'll get the bastard who did it. Well, I think the naivete and the like the trusting of people that he probably shouldn't be trusting of and that as an audience member, we have a sort of natural wariness towards. Mm -hmm. I think that Pierce pulls that off really well. He puts himself in harm's way a lot. And you as an audience member, even though you're trying to figure out this mystery alongside him, you don't want to see him get hurt. And so it really does. It does a great job of making him the protagonist of the movie and not simply the plot engine of the movie. Yeah, I I think the other thing is that Nolan leans into kind of the horror movie trope of like, why are they going into the basement rather than the the running car Mm -hmm. outside? Mm hmm. In the sense that, like, as an audience member, you just keep asking yourself, why is he trusting her? Why is he trusting him? Like, what? Like, why are you doing the things that you're doing? And yet it, like, works for the movie because it keeps you engaged as a viewer where you keep asking yourself, like, why is he doing the things that he's doing? 
and 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 you you're trying to learn about him as a character and and you get to the point where you realize he has this grim optimism of like I'm going to do whatever it takes to to solve the murder of my wife. All right, Brad, is there anything else about the movie itself you want to talk about? I have like a fun closing segment for us, but is there anything within the movie itself, the direction, the cinematography, anything that you want to make sure we talk about first? Um, I really liked Stephen Tobolowsky and Harriet uh, Harris mm-hmm. as Mr. and Mrs. Jankis. Yeah, they were excellent. Uh, like the those were probably some of my favorite parts of the film when he's like explaining the story of of Sammy Jankis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Good. Good observation, man. Nailed it. <laughs> Thanks for the great, great, you know, f- little kickback there. Uh, I love the way we have dialogue, Bob. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, you've been criticizing dialogue this whole episode, so I'm trying to eliminate <laughs> any between us here. I mean, if I wanted to do dialogue the way Guy Pierce talks on the phone, I would go, well, first off, I would wait like three seconds after you talk, and then I would go, wow, yeah, Bob, that's what I think about it, too. Shut up, dude. It's not that bad. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> it's pretty rough, man. Okay, here's my question for you, Brad. I don't know if this is a fun segment, but the more I think about this movie, the more that it really puts an incriminating light on another movie that I really, really love. And that movie is Martin Scorsese's Shutter Island because they are the same movie. Like like every single thing about the plot of both movies is the same. And I think that's why Shutter Island received such kind of lukewarm reviews when it was first released. I think critics are coming around to it now more because of what Scorsese did than anything in the script. But that was a book written by Dennis Lehane, the guy that also wrote Gone Baby Gone and Mystic River. And I love all of those movies. But I got to say, the guy really just ripped off Memento. I don't think that Shutter Island was written prior to Memento coming out. I'll have to look at the release date. But in any case, it is a huge coincidence that those movies both end up being about a guy with a dead wife who is trying to find her killer who goes into these shady environments and is then told that, uh, you know, he was the cause of the whole thing. You find out at the end of both movies, spoiler alert, I guess, that they are both the one that killed their own wife and they could not live with the grief. And so they invented kind of alter egos for themselves. And in this movie, it's this, you know, this John G character in uh, Shutter Island. It was, oh, what's the guy's name that they're searching for? Um... Latus. He's looking for a guy named Latus in that movie. And then he finds out that his name is actually Edward Latus, right? His name's Teddy in the movie. There's a Teddy in this movie. Mm. I don't know if I should have less respect for Shutter Island. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are, because I know that we both mentioned Shutter Island at one point while we were watching Memento. Yeah, I, I don't know if I would say Shutter Island and Memento are like as much of a one to one comparison. For me, Shutter Island feels much, much more like a beautiful mind mm. in, in like the detective nature of it. Like this one doesn't really feel like a detective movie to me, which I, I know sounds weird, but it's so strange, the chronology of it, mm-hmm. that you quickly realize this isn't about him 
like figuring it out. It's about Nolan being cool as a director and like doing the movie backwards. Okay, so take wait, take the genre out of it though. And even to some extent the structure. Like if you were doing a Brad explains on the plot of Shutter Island and a Brad explains on this movie, which you just did and you laid this movie out chronologically when you did your Brad explains. Like you got to at least admit that almost beat for beat these movies follow the exact same story. I don't know if they do. Hmm. Uh, like for me, I, I don't know. I don't think that Shutter Island and this film remind me of them a lot at all. <laughs> yeah, I, I still I, feel like you're not. Huh. To some extent, I don't I, know that you're answering my question. Like if you took the plot of Forrest Gump and made it a horror movie, like they'd still uh-huh. have the same plot. You know what I'm it's, saying? It's, like it's it's memento if you turn Forrest Gump into a horror film. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> no. I'm saying that you can take any movie and Uh replicate the plot and make it a different genre, but that doesn't negate the fact that they still follow the same beats. Like, these movies follow the exact same story beats, and there are, I think, too many similarities between them to not at least confront that head on. And I was going to, you know, I thought that you'd be more cooperative with this segment. This has been a huge flop for me, but I was going to... I'm going to give you one last pushback. Bob, any detective movie has the same beats. No, he did it. Oh, wait. No, he didn't. Oh, wait. It was her. Oh, wait. It wasn't. Oh, wait. Now there's the twist. This is who actually did it. I'm you piss me off so much, dude. Like, (laughs) literally, you're not even engaging with what I'm saying. I was going to come engaging with what you're saying. I I literally just uh, I'm like, yeah, almost all detective movies have the same beats. Okay, but it doesn't make me like most detective movies that they're most detective movies don't have anything to do with the hero getting convenient amnesia after murdering his own wife and the big reveal being that he murdered his own wife and then constructed an identity for himself uh, to not deal with the grief. Like there are very few movies where that is the big reveal. Maybe. Okay. Sure. All right. God bless it. I was going to come in at the end and be like, well, actually, I, you know what? I don't have I, I haven't lost respect for Shutter Island because at the end of the day, I think that if you're going to blame anybody for Shutter Island being similar to this movie, it would be Dennis Lehane for writing the story. But Scorsese directs the hell out of Shutter Island. And I think that Shutter Island is a much better directed movie than Memento is. And that was going to be my big segue into us doing let's make it a double in our final scores. But I guess to try to redeem this segment, I will say, Brad, do you agree with me that Scorsese directing Shutter Island does a better job than Nolan directing Memento? A million times, yes. Okay. Well, there. That's the that's the easiest take in the world. <laughs> Shutter Island is way better directed film and just a better movie altogether than uh, than Memento is. Well, then let's get into <laughs> let's make it a double. We're near the end of the episode, so thanks for listening to the Film and Whiskey Show. Let's pair another film with this one, even if it's a struggle. It's, it's a final, final segment, segment of the day, now let's make it a double. Let's make it a double is the part of the show where we pick a movie to pair up with this one to make the perfect double feature. Brad, I'll let you go first, since Shutter Island apparently is nothing like this movie. So uh, (laughs) I'll scramble to think of something else while you give us your perfect pick. I'll give you this, man. I I like Shutter Island way better than Memento. They just don't remind me of each other. Hmm. Uh, I'm going to pick The Truman Show, 1998, Jim Carrey. Nice. I think that that film has enough in common of... A man whose life isn't anything like what he thought it was 
And I, I think that there's some good similarities there that make it the same movie, and we should probably put down Memento because of it. There you go. So, The Truman Show. I'm going to go noir with this one. I'll go way back to like the 1940s. I'm going to pick a movie called DOA, which is a movie about a guy. It's a really cool movie, Brad. It's about a guy who gets poisoned somehow with some sort of radioactive something. And he finds out that he has like 24 hours before he dies. And he has to figure out who poisoned him before he croaks. It's a really good movie. You can't trust anybody uh, motives are always called into question. I just, we don't do a lot of noir on this podcast and any chance that I get to plug like really hard boiled, mean spirited noir movies, I will do. So I'm going to pair it up with DOA. Brad's going to pair it up with the Truman show. Now, Bob, you have to be clear here because DOA could be referring to 1988's Dennis Quaid, yes. Meg Ryan starring film. That is the remake. Of the 1949, ver is it 49, the original? 49, yeah. yes. Or you could be talking about 2006, Dead or Alive. Mm. Uh, no, I'm referring to DOA, which in most parlance refers to Dead on Arrival. So uh -huh. uh, that's the one I want. 49, not the Dennis Quaid, not the 2006. 49, All baby. Right. Just, just making sure we're clear here. I know we've had some miscommunication oh today. Oh my gosh, you are just full of sass today, sir. <laughs> Let's get to final scores. I'll let you go first uh, so that I can, I can calm my nerves over here. I think that the idea of Memento is way cooler than the actual film Memento. Like the, the idea of it is really fascinating and really, really uh, like draws you in. And the final 20 minutes of the film are like far and away the peak that this film has to offer. The rest of it's just okay. Like, and like on the lower end of just okay. I'm going to give it a seven out of 10, Bob. Mm -hmm. It was entertaining. Like it was fine, but it, I don't think it's a movie I would ever want to come back to. I'm way higher on this movie than I thought that I would be. Uh, I was thinking about giving it an 8.5. I don't think I'm going to go that high because, like I said, for a good chunk of the movie, I was like, this is a four. What the heck, man? And it got to the ending, and the ending was so good that I have been left with this existential question of, like, does a perfect ending cover a multitude of sins, right? Like, how much does a perfect ending improve a four out of 10 movie. And I think by the time the ending came around, I was at least at like a six out of 10. But this movie has really serious flaws with it. But it is so brilliantly constructed and the ending is so good that I think people are willing to forgive a lot with this movie. I'm willing to forgive most of it, but I think you do have to keep in mind that this is not a perfect film. And so I'm going to come out to an eight out of 10, way higher than I thought that I would be. And I will say to the film's credit, I've been thinking about it almost nonstop since we watched it. The problem is that sometimes I've thought about it from the point of view of like, does that even make sense? Like, did they only do that one thing <laughs> because it's cool to not tell the audience that? Not every thought that I've had about this movie has been positive, I guess is what I'll say. But at the end of the day, I've been thinking about it, and that is a largely positive thing to say. So I'm at an eight. Brad's at a seven. We are coming out to, once again, a very easy to average 7.5 out of 10. Bob, do you want to know what movie I've been thinking about that I watched like two or three days after Memento? What's that? Bicycle Thieves. Mm. Oh, Big Brad, fan. look at you. Do you like it? Big fan. Oh. Like, like nine out of 10. Absolutely love that movie. I don't know if there's ever been a better film 
that captures the like hopelessness of being in poverty. Mm. So just beautiful. Also, we've talked about uh, Haley Joel Osment in The Sixth Sense is the best child performance ever. Whoever the little kid is who plays Bruno might be the cutest child ever caught on film. Brad, I, you know, once again, I don't mean to disparage or demean you, but like what led to you watching The Bicycle Thieves? Because that seems like a movie that I would have had to pull teeth to get you to watch. Like what <laughs> what made you stumble upon that one? Uh, I was I had a week off. I was up in the Akron area with uh, my wife and kiddos. And I was like just looking through HBO Max and they have a Turner Classic movie section. And I was looking for something to watch and I saw Bicycle Thieves and I was like, you know. That like I I looked back I think it's like number thirty eight on the most recent sight and sound poll mm-hmm. and a lot of people have it like in their top ten and I was like you know I'm gonna give it a try it it is yeah but you know it really tips me into watching it Bob what's that it's like eighty three minutes <laughs> and I was like the perfect less than, like... less than less than ninety I'm in. All right, man. So we are coming out to a 7.5 on Memento. I would really like to talk about the Bicycle Thieves with you someday, but you got to save it for the pod, man. Can't give it all away here. (laughs) I'm so sorry. Let us know what you think about Memento. Brad, we're definitely lower than most people on this movie. I think this has around an eight, either an 8.3 or an 8.4 on IMDb. It's definitely in their their top 250. It's dude. I think it's in their top like 25 or 30. That's crazy. (laughs) It has an 8.4 on IMDb and is it's not that good, guys. I will say (laughs) in that group of movies that are like they hit late Gen X, early millennials at the right time and they were like cool guy movies. I think this might be the best of the bunch. Like, I think this is a better movie than Fight Club or at least that it works better for me than Fight Club did. But I still lump it in with those movies, the like. Boondock Saints, Fight Club, Memento, even The Matrix to some extent, but The Matrix is just a way better movie than any of these. I I just I've never understood why we inflate that group of movies in the cultural like consciousness, because regardless of the fact that I like it better than you, Brad, this is not one of the 25 best films ever made. What are you people talking yeah. about? So uh, I will say I, w- I was wrong. I just looked it up, but I'm going to make you angry, Bob. Mm. This movie is number 55 on IMDb mm-hmm. at, uh, uh, with an 8.4. It's at number 55 right in front of, in order, Django Unchained, oh. Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark, oh. and, and WALL-E. Ugh. Yeah, I don't all, all, all better. three. All better than this. Way better films <laughs> than Memento. Well, <laughs> Film and Whiskey Nation, I think we've given you some fuel. Do you agree or disagree with us about Memento? You can find us on our social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok, at Film Whiskey. Or you can jump onto our Discord. We are on there every single day talking to you guys, the fans of the Film and Whiskey podcast. So if you want to join the conversation on Discord, you can find a link to it at the end of every single one of our show notes. Next week, we will be back with a very special guest talking about a movie that I have a contentious relationship with, and that is one of Nolan's highest regarded films, The Prestige. Join us next week for that. But until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time. 